Part Three of the Dueling Machine by Ben Bova and Myron R. Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Three of the Dueling Machine by Ben Bova and Myron R. Lewis. Chapter Eleven. Dr. Leo stared at the dinner table without really seeing it. Coming to the restaurant had been Hector's idea. Three hours earlier, Massan had been removed from the dueling machine, dead. Leo sat stolidly, hands in lap, his mind racing in many different directions at once. Hector was off at the phone, getting the latest information from the medtechs. Odal had expressed his regrets perfunctorily and then left for the Kerak Embassy under a heavy escort of his own plainclothes guards. The government of the Aquitaine Cluster was quite literally falling apart, with no man willing to assume responsibility, and thereby expose himself. One hour after the duel, Canis's troops had landed on all the major planets of the Zarno Confederacy. The annexation was a fait accompli. And what have I done since I arrived on Aquitania? Leo demanded of himself. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I have sat back like a doddering old professor and played academic games with the machine, while younger, more vigorous men have used the machine to suit their purposes. Used the machine. There was a fragment of an idea in that phrase. Something nebulous that must be approached carefully or it will fade away. Used the machine. Used it. Leo toyed with the phrase for a few moments, then gave it up with a sigh of resignation. Lord, I'm too tired even to think. Leo focused his attention on his surroundings and scanned the busy dining room. It was a beautiful place, really, decorated with crystal and genuine woods and fabric draperies, not a synthetic in sight. The waiters and cooks and busboys were humans, not the auto-cookers and servers that most restaurants employed. Leo suddenly felt touched at Hector's attempt to restore his spirits, even if it was being done at Starwatch expense. He saw the young watchman approaching the table, coming back from the phone. Hector bumped two waiters and stumbled over a chair before reaching the relative safety of his own seat. "'What's the verdict?' Leo asked. Hector's lean face was bleak. "'Couldn't revive him. Cerebral hemorrhage,' the medtech said, induced by shock. Shock? That's what they said. Something must have uh, overloaded his nervous system, I guess. Leo shook his head. I just don't understand any of this. I might as well admit it. I'm no closer to an answer now than I was when I arrived here. Perhaps I should have retired years ago before the dueling machine was invented. Nonsense. No, I, I mean it, Leo said. This is the first real intellectual puzzle I've had to contend with in years. Tinkering with machinery, that's easy. You know what you want. All you need to do is make the machinery perform properly. But this, I'm afraid I'm too old to handle a real problem like this. Hector scratched his nose thoughtfully, then answered. If you can't handle the problem, sir, then we're going to have a war on our hands in a matter of weeks. I mean, Canis won't be satisfied with swallowing the Zarno group. The Aquitaine Cluster is next, and he'll have to fight to get it. 
Then the Star Watch can step in, Leo said resignedly. Maybe. But it'll take time to mobilize the Star Watch. Canis can move a lot faster than we can. Oh, sure, we could throw in a task force, a token group, that is. But Canis's gang will chew them up pretty quick. I... I'm no politician, sir, but I think I can see what will happen. Kerak will gobble up the Aquatane Cluster. A Star Watch task force will be wiped out in the battle, and we'll end up with Kerak at war with the Terran Commonwealth. And it'll be a real war. A big one. Leo began to answer, then stopped. His eyes were fixed on the far entrance of the dining room. Suddenly, every murmur in the busy room stopped dead. Waiters stood still between tables. Eating, drinking, conversation hung suspended. Hector turned in his chair and saw at the far entrance the slim, stiff, blue-uniformed figure of Odal. The moment of silence passed. Everyone turned to his own business and avoided looking at the Kerak Major. Odal, with a faint smile on his thin face, made his way slowly to the table where Hector and Leo were sitting. They rose to greet him and exchanged perfunctory salutations. Odal pulled up a chair and sat with them. I assume that you've been looking for me, Leo said. What do you wish to say? Before Odal could answer, the waiter assigned to the table walked up, took a position where his back would be to the Kerak Major, and asked firmly, Your dinner is ready, gentlemen. Shall I serve it now? Leo hesitated a moment, then asked Odal, Will you join us? I'm afraid not. Serve it now, Hector said. The Major will be leaving shortly. Again the tight grin broke across Odal's face. The waiter bowed and left. I have been thinking about our conversation of last night, Odal said to Leo. Yes? You accused me of cheating in my duels. Leo's eyebrows arched. I said, someone was cheating, yes. An accusation is an accusation. Leo said nothing. Do you withdraw your words, or do you still accuse me of deliberate murder? I am willing to allow you to apologize and leave Aquitania in peace." Hector cleared his throat noisily. This is no place to have an argument. Besides, here comes our dinner. Odal ignored the watchman. You heard me, Professor. Will you leave, or do you accuse me of murdering Massan this afternoon? I— Hector banged his fist on the table and jerked up out of his chair just as the waiter arrived with a large tray of food. There was a loud crash, a tureen of soup, two bowls of salad, glasses, assorted rolls, vegetables, cheeses, and other delicacies cascaded over Odal. The Kerak Major leaped to his feet, swearing violently in his native tongue. He sputtered back into basic Terran. You clumsy, stupid oaf, you maggot-brained, misbegotten, peasant-faced! Hector calmly picked a salad leaf from the sleeve of his tunic. Odal abruptly stopped his tirade. I am clumsy, Hector said, grinning. As for being stupid and the rest of it, I resent that. I'm highly insulted. A flash of recognition lighted Odal's eyes. I see. Of course, my quarrel here is not with you. I apologize. He turned back to Leo, who was also standing now. Not good enough, Hector said. I don't, uh, like the tone of your apology. 
Leoh raised his hand, as if to silence the younger man. I apologized. That is sufficient, Odal warned. Hector took a step toward Odal. I guess I could insult your glorious leader, or something like that, but this seems more direct. He took the water pitcher from the table and poured it calmly and carefully over Odal's head. A wave of laughter swept the room. Odal went white. You are determined to die. He wiped the dripping water from his eyes. I will meet you before the week is out, and you have saved no one. He turned on his heel and stalked out. You realize what you've done? Leo asked aghast. Hector shrugged. He was going to challenge you. He will still challenge me after you're dead. Uh, yes, well, maybe so. I, I guess you're right. Well, anyway, we've gained a little more time. Four days, Leo shook his head. Four days to the end of the week. All right, come on, we have work to do. Hector was grinning broadly as they left the restaurant. He began to whistle. What are you so happy about? Leo grumbled. About you, sir. When we came in here you were, uh, well, almost beaten. Now you're right back in the game again. Leo glanced at the Star Watch man. In your own odd way, Hector, you're quite a boy, I think. Chapter 12 their ground car glided from the parking building to the restaurant's entrance ramp at the radio call of the doorman. Within minutes, Hector and Leo were cruising through the city in the deepening shadows of night. There's only one man, Leo said, who has faced Odal and lived through it. Dulac, Hector agreed. But for all the information the medical people have been able to get from him, he might as well be uh, dead. He's still completely withdrawn? Hector nodded. The medicos think that, well, maybe in a few months, with drugs and psychotherapy and all that, they might be able to bring him back. It won't be soon enough. We've only got four days. I know. Leo was silent for several minutes. Then, who is Dulac's closest living relative? Does he have a wife? I think his wife is, uh, dead. He has a daughter, though. Pretty girl. Bumped into her in the hospital once or twice. Leo smiled in the darkness. Hector's term, bumped into, was probably completely literal. Why are you asking about Dulac's next of kin? Because, Leo replied, I think there might be a way to make Dulac tell us what happened during his duel. But it is a very dangerous way. Perhaps a fatal way. Oh. They lapsed into silence again. Finally, he blurted, Come on, my boy, let's find the daughter and talk to her. Tonight? Now? She certainly is a pretty girl, Leo thought as he explained very carefully to Jerry Dulac what he proposed to do. She sat quietly and politely in the spacious living room of the Dulac residence. The glittering chandelier cast torches of fire on her chestnut hair. Her slim body was slightly rigid with tension. Her hands were clasped in her lap. Her face, which looked as though it could be very expressive, was completely serious now. And that is the sum of it, Leo concluded. I believe that it will be possible to use the dueling machine itself to examine your father's thoughts and determine exactly what took place during his duel against Major Odal. She asked softly, But 
You are afraid that the shock might be repeated and this could be fatal to my father. Leo nodded wordlessly. Then I am very sorry, sir, but I must say no, firmly. I understand your feelings, Leo replied, but I hope you realize that unless we can stop Odal and Canis immediately, we may very well be faced with war. She nodded. I know, but you must remember that we are speaking of my father, of his very life. Canis will have his war in any event, no matter what I do. Perhaps, Leo admitted, perhaps. Hector and Leo drove back to the university campus and their quarters in the dueling machine chamber. Neither of them slept well that night. The next morning, after an unenthusiastic breakfast, they found themselves standing in the antiseptic white chamber before the looming impersonal intricacy of the machine. "'Would you like to practice with it?' Leo asked. Hector shook his head. "'Maybe later.' The phone chimed in Leo's office. They both went in. Jerry Dulac's face showed on the tri-die screen. I have just heard the news. I did not know that Lieutenant Hector has challenged Odal. Her face was a mixture of concern and reluctance. He challenged Odal, Leo answered, to prevent the assassin from challenging me. Oh, you are a very brave man, Lieutenant. Hector's face went through various contortions and slowly turned a definite red, but no words issued from his mouth. Have you reconsidered your decision? Leo asked. The girl closed her eyes briefly, then said flatly, I am afraid I cannot change my decision. My father's safety is my first responsibility. I'm sorry. They exchanged a few meaningless trivialities, with Hector still thoroughly tongue-tied, and ended the conversation on a polite but strained note. Leo rubbed his thumb across the phone switch for a moment, then turned to Hector. My boy? I think it would be a good idea for you to go straight to the hospital and check on Dulac's condition. But why? Don't argue, son. This could be vitally important. Hector shrugged and left the office. Leo sat down at his desk and drummed his fingers on the top of it. Then he burst out of the office and began pacing the big chamber. Finally, even that was too confining. He left the building and started stalking through the campus. He walked past a dozen buildings, turned and strode as far as the decorative fence that marked the end of the main campus, ignoring students and faculty alike. Campuses are all alike, he muttered to himself. On every human planet, for all the centuries, there have been universities. There must be some fundamental reason for it. Leo was halfway back to the dueling machine facility when he spotted Hector walking dazedly toward the same building. For once the watchman was not whistling. Leo cut across some lawn and pulled up beside the youth. Well? he asked. Hector shook his head as if to clear away an inner fog. How did you know she'd pee at the hospital? The wisdom of age. What happened? She kissed me. Right there in the hallway of the— Spare me the geography, Leo cut in. What did she say? I— bumped into her in the hallway. We, uh, started talking, sort of. She seemed, well, worried about me. She got upset, uh, emotional, you know? I, I guess I looked pretty forlorn and frightened. I am, I guess, when you get right down to it, I mean. You aroused her maternal instinct. I, I don't think it was that exactly. Well, anyway, 
She said that if I was willing to risk my life to save yours, she couldn't protect her father any more. She said she was doing it out of selfishness, really, since he's her only living relative. I don't believe she meant that, but she said it anyway." They had reached the building by now. Leo grabbed Hector's arm and steered him clear of a collision with the half-open door. She's agreed to let us put Dulac in the dueling machine? Sort of. Eh? The medical staff doesn't want him to be moved from the hospital, especially not back to here. She agrees with them. Leo snorted. All right. In fact, so much the better. I'd rather not have the Kerak people see us bring Dulac to the dueling machine. So instead, we shall smuggle the dueling machine to Dulac. Chapter 13 They plunged to work immediately. Leo preferred not to inform the regular staff of the dueling machine about their plan, so he and Hector had to work through the night and most of the next morning. Hector barely understood what he was doing, but with Leo's supervision he managed to dismantle part of the dueling machine's central network, insert a few additional black boxes that the professor had conjured up from the spare parts bins in the basement, and then reconstruct the machine so that it looked exactly the same as before they had started. In between his frequent trips to oversee Hector's work, Leo had jury-rigged a rather bulky headset and a hand-sized override control circuit. The late morning sun was streaming through the tall windows when Leo finally explained it all to Hector. A simple matter of technological improvisation, he told the bewildered watchman. You have installed a short-range transceiver into the machine, and this headset is a portable transceiver for Dulac. Now he can sit in his hospital bed and still be in the dueling machine. Only the three most trusted members of the hospital staff were taken into Leo's confidence, and they were hardly enthusiastic about Leo's plan. It's a waste of time, said the chief psychophysician, shaking his white-maned head vigorously. You cannot expect a patient who has shown no positive response to drugs and therapy to respond to your machine. Leo argued. Jerry Dulac coaxed. Finally, the doctors agreed. With only two days remaining before Hector's duel with Odal, they began to probe Dulac's mind. Jerry remained by her father's bedside while the three doctors fitted the cumbersome transceiver to Dulac's head and attached the electrodes for the automatic hospital equipment that monitored his physical condition. Hector and Leo remained at the dueling machine, communicating with the hospital by phone. Leo made a final check of the controls and circuitry, then put in the last call to the tense little group in Dulac's room. All was ready. He walked out to the machine with Hector beside him. Their footsteps echoed hollowly in the sepulchral chamber. Leo stopped at the nearest booth. Now remember, he said carefully, I will be holding the emergency control unit in my hand. It will stop the duel the instant I set it off. However, if something should go wrong, you must be prepared to act quickly. Keep a close watch on my physical condition. I've shown you which instruments to check on the control board. Yes, sir. Leo nodded and took a deep breath. Very well, then. He stepped into the booth and sat down. The emergency control unit rested on a shelf at his side. He took it in his hands. He leaned back and waited for the semi-hypnotic effect to take hold. Dulac's choice of this very city and the stat wand were known, but beyond that everything was locked and sealed in Dulac's subconscious mind. Could the machine reach into that subconscious? 
probe past the lock and seal of Catatonia and stimulate Dulac's mind into repeating the duel? Slowly, lullingly, the dueling machine's imaginary yet very real mists enveloped Leo. When the mists cleared, he was standing on the upper pedestrian level of the main commercial street of the city. For a long moment, everything was still. Have I made contact? Whose eyes am I seeing with? My own or Dulac's? And then he sensed it, an amusing, somewhat astonished marveling at the reality of the illusion. Dulac's thoughts. Make your mind a blank, Leo told himself. Watch, listen, be passive. He became a spectator, seeing and hearing the world through Dulac's eyes and ears as the Aquitanian Prime Minister advanced through his nightmarish ordeal. He felt the confusion, frustration, apprehension, and growing terror as time and again Odal appeared in the crowd only to melt into someone else and escape. The first part of the duel ended, and Leo was suddenly buffeted by a jumble of thoughts and impressions. Then the thoughts slowly cleared and steadied. Leo saw an immense and totally barren plain. Not a tree, not a blade of grass. Nothing but bare, rocky ground stretching in all directions to the horizon and a disturbingly harsh yellow sky. At his feet was the weapon Odal had chosen, a primitive club. He shared Dulac's sense of dread as he picked up the club and hefted it. Off on the horizon he could see a tall, lithe figure holding a similar club walking toward him. Despite himself, Leo could feel his own excitement. He had broken through the shock-created armor that Dulac's mind had erected. Dulac was reliving the part of the duel that had caused the shock. Reluctantly, he advanced to meet Odal, but as they drew closer together, the one figure of his opponent seemed to split apart. Now there were two, four, six of them. Six Odals, six mirror images, all armed with massive evil clubs, advancing steadily on him. Six tall, lean, blonde assassins with six cold smiles on their intent faces. Horrified, completely panicked, he scrambled away, trying to evade the six opponents with the half-dozen clubs raised and poised to strike. Their young legs and lungs easily outdistanced him. A smash on his back sent him sprawling. One of them kicked his weapon away. They stood over him for a malevolent, gloating second. Then six strong arms flashed down again and again, mercilessly. Pain and blood, screaming agony punctuated by the awful thudding of solid clubs hitting fragile flesh and bone, over and over again, endlessly. Everything went blank. Leo opened his eyes and saw Hector bending over him. Are you all right, sir? I... I think so. The controls all hit the danger mark at once. You were, well, sir, you were screaming. I don't doubt it, Leo said. They walked with Leo leaning on Hector's arm from the dueling machine booth to the office. That was an experience, Leo said, easing himself into the couch. What happened? What did Odal do? What made Dulac go into shock? How does— The old man silenced Hector with a wave of his hand. One question at a time, please." Leo leaned back on the deep couch and told Hector every detail of both parts of the duel. Six Odals, Hector muttered soberly, leaning back against the doorframe. Six against one. That's what he did, 
It's easy to see how a man expecting a polite formal duel can be completely shattered by the viciousness of such an attack. And the machine amplifies every impulse, every sensation. But how does he do it? Hector asked, his voice suddenly loud and demanding. I've been asking myself the same question. We've checked over the dueling machine time and again. There is no possible way for Odal to plug in five helpers. Unless... Unless? Leo hesitated, seemingly debating with himself. Finally he nodded his head sharply and answered, Unless Odal is a telepath. Telepath? But... I know, it sounds far-fetched, but there have been well-documented cases of telepathy for centuries throughout the Commonwealth. Hector frowned. Sure, everybody's heard about it, natural telepaths, but they're so unpredictable, I don't see how... Leo leaned forward on the couch and clasped his hands in front of his chin. The Terran races have never developed telepathy or any of the extrasensory talents. They never had to, not with dry-dye communications and super-light starships. But perhaps the Kerak people are different. Hector shook his head. If they had telepathic abilities, they would be using them everywhere, don't you think? Probably so. But only Odal has shown such an ability, and only... Of course! What? Odal has shown telepathic ability only in the dueling machine. As far as we know. Certainly. But look, suppose he's a natural telepath, the same as a Terran. He has an erratic, difficult-to-control talent. Then he gets into a dueling machine. The machine amplifies his thoughts, and it also amplifies his talent. Oh. You see, outside the machine he's no better than any wandering fortune-teller. But the dueling machine gives his natural abilities the amplification and reproducibility that they could never have unaided. Hector nodded. So it's a fairly straightforward matter for him to have five associates in the Karak Embassy sit in on the duel, so to speak. Possibly they are natural telepaths also, but they needn't be. They just, uh, pool their minds with his? Hmm. Six men show in the duel. Pretty nasty. Hector dropped into his chair. So what do we do now? Now? Leo blinked at his young friend. Why, I suppose the first thing we should do is call the hospital and see how Dulac came through. Leo put the call through. Jerry Dulac's face appeared on the screen. How's your father? Hector blurted. The duel was too much for him, she said blankly. He is dead. No, Leo groaned. I, I'm sorry, Hector said. I'll be right down there. Stay where you are. The young Star Watch man dashed out of the office as Jerry broke the phone connection. Leo stared at the blank screen for a few moments, then leaned far back in the couch and closed his eyes. He was suddenly exhausted, physically and emotionally. He fell asleep and dreamed of men dead and dying. Hector's nerve-shattering whistling woke him up. It was full night outside. "'What are you so happy about?' Leo groused as Hector popped into the office. "'Happy? Me? You were whistling!' Hector shrugged. I always whistle, sir. Doesn't mean I'm happy. All right, Leo said, rubbing his eyes. How did the girl take her father's death? Pretty hard. 
cried a lot. Leo looked at the younger man. Does she blame me? You? Why, no, sir. Why should she? Odal, Canis, the Kerak worlds, but not you. The old professor sighed, relieved. Very well. Now then, we have much work to do, and little more than a day in which to finish it. What do you want me to do? Hector asked. Phone the Star Watch commander. My commanding officer all the way back at Alpha Perseus Six? That's a hundred light-years from here. No, no, no. Leo shook his head. The Commander-in-Chief, Sir Harold Spencer, at Star Watch Central Headquarters. That's several hundred parsecs from here. But get through to him as quickly as possible. With a low whistle of astonishment, Hector began punching buttons on the phone switch. Chapter 14 the morning of the duel arrived, and precisely at the agreed-upon hour, Odal and a small retinue of Kerak representatives stepped through the double doors of the dueling machine chamber. Hector and Leo were already there, waiting. With them stood another man, dressed in the black and silver of the Star Watch. He was a blocky, broad-faced veteran with iron-gray hair and hard, unsmiling eyes. The two little groups of men nodded together in the center of the room before the machine's control board. The white uniformed staff medtechs emerged from a far doorway and stood off to one side. Odal went through the formality of shaking hands with Hector. The Kerak major nodded toward the other watchman. Your replacement? he asked mischievously. The chief medtech stepped between them. Since you are the challenged party, Major Odal, you have the first choice of weapon and environment. Are there any instructions or comments necessary before the duel begins? I think not, Odal replied. The situation will be self-explanatory. I assume, of course, that Star Watch men are trained to be warriors and not merely technicians. The situation I have chosen is one in which many warriors have won glory. Hector said nothing. I intend, Leo said firmly, to assist the staff in monitoring this duel. Your aides may, of course, sit at the control board with me. Odal nodded. If you are ready to begin, gentlemen, the chief medtech said. Hector and Odal went to their booths. Leo sat at the control console, and one of the Kerak men sat down next to him. Hector felt every nerve and muscle tensed as he sat in the booth, despite his efforts to relax. Slowly the tension eased, and he began to feel slightly drowsy. The booth seemed to melt away. He was standing on a grassy meadow. Off in the distance were wooded hills. A, a cool breeze was hustling puffy clouds across the calm blue sky. Hector heard a snuffling noise behind him and wheeled around. He blinked, then stared. It had four legs and was evidently a beast of burden. At least it carried a saddle on its back. Piled atop the saddle was a conglomeration of which looked to Hector at first glance like a pile of junk. He went over to the animal and examined it carefully. The junk turned out to be a long spear, various pieces of armor, a helmet, sword, shield, battle-axe, and dagger. The situation I have chosen is one in which many warriors have won glory. Hector puzzled over the assortment of weapons. They came straight out of Kerak's Dark Ages. 
No doubt Odal had been practicing with them for months, even years. He may not need five helpers. Warily Hector put on the armor. The breastplate seemed too big, and he was somehow unable to tighten the greaves on his shins properly. The helmet fit over his head like an ancient oil can, flattening his ears and nose and forcing him to squint to see through the narrow eye-slit. Finally he buckled on the sword and found attachments on the saddle for the other weapons. The shield was almost too heavy to lift, and he barely struggled into the saddle with all the weight he was carrying. And then he just sat. He began to feel a little ridiculous. Suppose it rains, he wondered. But a of course it wouldn't. After an interminable wait, Odal appeared on a powerful trotting charger. His armor was black as space, and so was his animal. Naturally, Hector thought. Odal saluted gravely with his great spear from across the meadow. Hector returned the salute, nearly dropping his spear in the process. Then Odal lowered the spear and aimed it, so it seemed to Hector, directly at the watchman's ribs. He prickled his mount into a canter. Hector did the same, and his steed jogged into a bumping, jolting gallop. The two warriors hurtled toward each other from opposite ends of the meadow, and suddenly there were six black figures roaring down on Hector. The watchman's stomach wrenched within him. Automatically he tried to turn his mount aside, but the beast had no intention of going anywhere except straight ahead. The Kerak warriors bore in, six abreast, with six spears aimed menacingly. Abruptly Hector heard the pounding of other hoofbeats right beside him. Through a corner of his helmet slit he glimpsed at least two other warriors charging with him into Odal's crew. Leo's gamble had worked. The transceiver that had allowed Dulak to make contact with the dueling machine from his hospital bed was now allowing five Star Watch officers to join Hector even though they were physically sitting in a starship orbiting high above the planet. The odds were even now. The five additional watchmen were the roughest, hardest, most aggressive man-to-man -man fighters that the Star Watch could provide on a one-day notice. Twelve powerful chargers met head-on, and twelve strong men smashed together with an ear-splitting clang. Shattered spears showered splinters everywhere. Men and animals went down. Hector was rocked back in his saddle, but somehow managed to avoid falling off. On the other hand, he could not really regain his balance, either. Dust and weapons filled the air. A sword hissed near his head and rattled off his shield. With a supreme effort, Hector pulled out his own sword and thrashed at the nearest rider. It turned out to be a fellow watchman, but the stroke bounced harmlessly off his helmet. It was so confusing. The wheeling, snorting animals, clouds of dust, screaming, raging men. A black-armored rider charged into Hector, waving a battle-axe over his head. He chopped savagely, and the watchman's shield split apart. Another frightening swing. Hector tried to duck and slid completely out of the saddle, thumping painfully on the ground, while the axe cleaved the air where his head had been a split second later. Somehow his helmet had been turned around. Hector tried to decide whether to thrash around blindly or lay down his sword and straighten out the helmet. The problem was solved for him by the crang of a sword against the back of his helmet. The blow flipped him into a somersault, but also knocked the helmet completely off his head. Hector climbed painfully to his feet, his head spinning. It took him several moments to realize that the battle had stopped. 
The dust drifted away, and he saw that all the Kerak fighters were down, except one. The black-armored warrior took off his helmet and tossed it aside. It was Odal. Or was it? They all looked alike. What difference does it make? Hector wondered. Odal's mind is the dominant one. Odal stood, legs braced apart, sword in hand, and looked uncertainly at the other Star Watch men. Three of them were afoot, and two still mounted. The Kerak assassins seemed as confused as Hector felt. The shock of facing equal numbers had sapped much of his confidence. Cautiously he advanced toward Hector, holding his sword out before him. The other watchmen stood aside while Hector slowly backpedaled, stumbling slightly on the uneven ground. Odal fainted and cut at Hector's arm. The watchman barely parried in time. Another feint at the head and a slash into the chest. Hector missed the parry, but his armor saved him. Grimly, Odal kept advancing. Feint, feint, crack, and Hector's sword went flying from his hand. For the barest instant, everyone froze. Then Hector leaped desperately straight at Odal, caught him completely by surprise, and wrestled him to the ground. The watchman pulled the sword from his opponent's hand and tossed it away, but with his free hand Odal clouted Hector on the side of the head and knocked him on his back. Both men scrambled up and ran for the nearest weapons. Odal picked up a wicked-looking double-bladed axe. One of the mounted Star Watch men handed Hector a huge broadsword. He gripped it with both hands, but still staggered off balance as he swung it up over his shoulder. Holding the broadsword aloft, Hector charged towards Odal, who stood dogged, short-breathed, sweat-streaked, waiting for him. The broadsword was quite heavy, even for a two-handed grip, and Hector did not notice his own battered helmet lying on the ground between them. Odal, for his part, had Hector's charge and swing timed perfectly in his own mind. He would duck under the swing and bury his axe in the watchman's chest. Then he would face the others. Probably, with their leader gone, the duel would automatically end. But, of course, Hector would not really be dead. The best Odal could hope for now was to win the duel. Hector charged directly into Odal's plan, but the watchman's timing was much poorer than anticipated. Just as he began the downswing of a mighty broadsword stroke, he stumbled on the helmet. Odal started to duck, then saw that the watchman was diving face-first into the ground, legs flailing, and that heavy broadsword was cleaving through the air with a will of its own. Odal pulled back in confusion, only to have the wild, swinging broadsword strike him just above the wrist. The axe dropped out of his hand, and Odal involuntarily grasped the wounded forearm with his left hand. Blood seeped through his fingers. He shook his head in bitter resignation, turned his back on the prostrate Hector, and began walking away. Slowly the scene faded, and Hector found himself sitting in the booth of the dueling machine. Chapter 15 The door opened and Leo squeezed into the booth. You're all right? Hector blinked and refocused his eyes on reality. Think so. Everything went well? The watchmen got through to you? Good thing they did. I was nearly killed anyway. But you survived. So far. Across the room, Odal stood massaging his forehead while Kor demanded, How could they have possibly have discovered the secret? Where was the leak? That is not important now, 
Odal said quietly. The primary fact is that they have not only discovered our secret, but they have found a way of duplicating it. Sanctimonious hypocrites, Kor snarled, accusing us of cheating, and then they do the same thing. Regardless of the moral values of our mutual behavior, Odal said dryly, it is evident that there is no longer any use in calling on telepathically guided assistance. I shall face the Watchman alone during the second half of the duel. Can you trust them to do the same? Yes. They easily defeated my aides a few minutes ago, then stood aside and allowed the two of us to fight by ourselves. And you failed to defeat him? Odal frowned. I was wounded by a fluke. He is a very unusual opponent. I cannot decide whether he is actually as clumsy as he appears to be, or whether he is shamming and trying to make us overconfident. Either way, it is impossible to predict his behavior. Perhaps he is also telepathic. Kor's gray eyes became flat and emotionless. You know, of course, how the Chancellor will react if you fail to kill this Watchman. Not merely defeat him. He must be killed. The aura of invincibility must be maintained. I will do my best, Odal said. He must be killed. The chime that marked the end of the rest period sounded. Odal and Hector returned to their booths. Now it was Hector's choice of environment and weapons. Odal found himself enveloped in darkness. Only gradually did his eyes adjust. He saw that he was in a spacesuit. For several minutes he stood motionless, peering into the darkness, every sense alert, every muscle coiled for immediate action. Dimly he could see the outlines of jagged rock against a background of innumerable stars. Experimentally he lifted one foot. It stuck tackily to the surface. Magnetized boots, Odal thought. This must be a planetoid. As his eyes grew accustomed to the dimness, he saw that he was right. It was a small planetoid, perhaps a mile or so in diameter, almost zero gravity, airless. Odal swiveled his head inside the fishbowl helmet of the spacesuit and saw over his right shoulder the figure of Hector, lank and ungainly, even with the bulky suit. For a moment Odal puzzled over the weapon to be used. Then Hector bent down, picked up a loose stone, straightened, and tossed it softly past Odal's head. The Kerak Major watched it sail by and off into the darkness of space, never to return to the tiny planetoid. A warning shot, Odal thought to himself. He wondered how much damage one could do with a nearly weightless stone, then remembered that inertial mass was unaffected by gravitational fields or the lack of them. A fifty-pound rock might be easier to lift, but it would be just as hard to throw and it would do just as much damage when it hit, regardless of its gravitational weight. Odal crouched down and selected a stone the size of his fist. He rose carefully, sighted Hector standing a hundred yards or so away, and threw as hard as he could. The effort of his throw sent him tumbling off balance, and the stone was far off target. He fell to his hands and knees, bounced lightly, and skidded to a stop. Immediately he drew his feet up under his body and planted the magnetized soles of his boots firmly on the iron-rich surface. But before he could stand again, a small stone pinged lightly off his oxygen tank. The star watchman had his range already! Odal scrambled to the nearest upjutting rocks and crouched behind them. Luckily I didn't rip open the spacesuit, 
he told himself. Three stones, evidently hurled in salvo, ticked off the top of the rocks he was hunched behind. One of the stones bounced into his fishbowl helmet. Odal scooped up a handful of pebbles and tossed them in Hector's general direction. That should make him duck. Perhaps he'll stumble and crack open his helmet. Then he grinned to himself. That's it. Kor wants him dead. And that is the way to do it. Pin him under a big rock, then bury him alive under more rocks. A few at a time, stretched out nicely, while his oxygen supply gives out. That should put enough stress on his nervous system to hospitalize him, at least. Then he can be assassinated by more conventional means. Perhaps he will even be as obliging as Massan and have a fatal stroke. A large rock. One that is light enough to lift and throw, yet also big enough to pin him for a few moments. Once he's down, it will be easy enough to bury him under more rocks. The Kerak Major spotted a boulder of the proper size a few yards away. He backed toward it, throwing small stones in Hector's direction to keep the watchman busy. In return, a barrage of stones began striking all around him. Several hit him, one hard enough to knock him slightly off balance. Slowly, patiently, Odal reached his chosen weapon an oblong boulder about the size of a small chair. He crouched behind it and tugged at it experimentally. It moved slightly. Another stone zinged off his arm, hard enough to hurt. Odal could see Hector clearly now, standing atop a small rise, calmly firing pellets at him. He smiled as he coiled cat-like and tensed himself. He gripped the boulder with his arms and hands. Then in one vicious, uncoiling motion he snatched it up, whirled around, and hurled it at Hector. The violence of his action sent him tottering awkwardly as he released the boulder. He fell to the ground, but kept his eyes fixed on the boulder as it tumbled end over end directly at the watchman. For an eternally long instant Hector stood motionless, seemingly entranced. Then he leaped sideways, floating dreamlike in the low gravity as the stone hurtled inexorably past him. Odal pounded his fist on the ground in fury. He started up, only to have a good-sized stone slam against his shoulder and knock him flat again. He looked up in time to see Hector fire another. The stone puffed into the ground inches from Odal's helmet. The Kek Major flattened himself. Several more stones clattered on his helmet and oxygen tank. Then silence. Odal looked up and saw Hector squatting down, reaching for more ammunition. The Kerak warrior stood up quickly, his own fists filled with throwing stones. He cocked his arm to throw, but something made him turn to look behind him. The boulder loomed before his eyes, still tumbling slowly as it had when he had thrown it. It was too close and too big to avoid. It smashed into Odal, picked him off his feet, and slammed him against the upjutting rocks a few yards away. Even before he started to feel the pain in his midsection, Odal began trying to push the boulder off but he could not get enough leverage. Then he saw the star watchman's form standing over him. I didn't really think you'd fall for it, Odal heard Hector's voice in his earphones. I mean, didn't you realize that the boulder was too massive to escape completely after it had missed me? You could have calculated its orbit. You just threw it into a six-minute orbit around the planetoid. It had to come back to Perigee, right where you were standing when you threw it, you know. Odal said nothing, but strained every cell in his pain-racked body to get free of the boulder. Hector reached over his shoulder and began fumbling with the valves that were pressed against the rocks. 
Sorry to do this, but I'm not, uh, killing you, at least. Just defeating you. Let's see. One of these is the oxygen valve, and the other, I think, is the emergency rocket pack. Now, which is which? Odal felt the watchman's hand searching for the proper valves. I should have dreamed up suits without the rocket pack. Confuses things. There. That's it. Hector's hand tightened on a valve and turned it sharply. The rocket roared to life, and Odal was hurtled free of the boulder, shot uncontrolled completely off the planetoid. Hector was bowled over by the blast and rolled halfway around the tiny chink of rock and metal. Odal tried to reach around to throttle down the rocket, but the pain in his body was too great. He was slipping into unconsciousness. He fought against it. He knew he must return to the planetoid and somehow kill the opponent. But gradually the pain overpowered him. His eyes were closing, closing. And quite abruptly he found himself sitting in the booth of the dueling machine. It took a moment for him to realize that he was back in the real world. Then his thoughts cleared. He had failed to kill Hector. And at the door of the booth stood Kor, his face a grim mask of anger. Chapter 16 The office was that of the new Prime Minister of the Aquitaine Cluster. It had been loaned to Leo for his conversation with Sir Harold Spencer. For the moment it seemed like a great double room. Half of it was dark, warm woods, rich draperies, floor-to-ceiling bookcases. The other half, from the tri-dye screen onward, was the austere metallic utility of a starship compartment. Spencer was saying, So this hired assassin, after killing four men and nearly wrecking a government, has returned to his native worlds. Leo nodded. He returned under guard. I suppose he is in disgrace, or perhaps even under arrest. Servants of a dictator never know when they will be the ones who are served, on a platter," Spencer chuckled. And the watchman who assisted you, this junior Lieutenant Hector, what of him? He's not here just now. The Dulac girl has him in tow somewhere. Evidently it's the first time he's been a hero. Spencer shifted his weight in the chair. I have long prided myself on the conviction that any Star Watch officer can handle almost any kind of emergency anywhere in the galaxy. From your description of the past few weeks I was beginning to have my doubts. However, Junior Lieutenant Hector seems to have won the day, almost in spite of himself. Don't underestimate him, Leo said, smiling. He turned out to be an extremely valuable man. I think he will make a fine officer. Spencer grunted an affirmative. Well, Leo said, that's the complete story to date. I believe that Odal is finished, but the Kerak worlds have made good their annexation of the Zarno Confederacy, and the Aquitaine Cluster is still very wobbly politically. We haven't heard the last of Canis, not by a long shot. Spencer lifted a shaggy eyebrow. Neither, he rumbled, has he heard the last from us. End of Part Three of The Dueling Machine End of The Dueling Machine by Ben Bova and Myron R. Lewis